Good morning again, and as mentioned, our comeback story of the day is found in the book of Jonah, and I'm going to start at the end by reading the conclusion from chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is God's word. Well, fun fact of the day. Did you know that the name Geppetto is Italian for Jonah? I almost don't want to tell you that for fear that it's going to be the only thing you're going to remember from this message. Now, this morning, we're going to come back to a familiar story about Jonah, the runaway prophet who gets swallowed by a giant fish and comes back out. And typically, that's about as far as most people get with the whole Jonah story, and they totally miss the point, and there are several. First off, it's not about the fish. Cool detail, but that's not what it's about. It's about things way bigger than a whale. It's about racism. It's about nationalism. It's about idolatry. It's about the struggles that we have as believers when it comes to obeying and trusting God. It's about judgment. It's about compassion. It's about coming to grips with a God who could be merciful to those who clearly don't deserve it. It's so much more than about the fish. And don't be fooled into thinking that this is a simple fable. Now granted, getting swallowed alive is certainly dramatic, but it's not the high point. But I will touch on that for just a minute because so many discount this part of God's word as something impossible. But how you respond to Jonah 
really depends on how you read the rest of the Bible. I think it's super interesting that Jesus didn't have a problem with it. In fact, he pointed to it as a way of comparison. He said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus took the Jonah story as fact. Furthermore, if you accept other miracles such as, oh, Jesus' resurrection, which is by far a greater miracle, then there really shouldn't be a problem with taking the Jonah text literally. Bottom line, God can certainly pull off a cool stunt like that. Now, how about you? If you text us hello, we're going to send you out some instructions for making your very own Jonah's whale at home. And I'll tell you, it's not for everyone. But I have done this a couple of times for the kids at Vacation Bible School, and they love it, especially the sardines. Now, I'm going to skip a lot of the story today, okay? Pastor Jim and I hope to use the four chapters of Jonah as an entire message series sometime down the road in the future. So today, I'm not going to stop too long at any one place, but rather I'm going to try to move us fairly quickly through the entire book. And it starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians certainly were wicked. They were one of the most cruelest, most violent empires of ancient times. History tells us that they were well known for torture, and dismemberment and decapitation. I read that after capturing their enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and then just one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake their victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They also forced family members to parade around with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. It's absolutely shameful what mankind can do to one another. Go there, God says. Absolutely scary. And absolutely shocking news. This was a call for a Hebrew prophet to leave Israel and go out to a Gentile city. Up until this point, prophets had only be sent to God's people. And so this is big, and this is where the racial stuff comes in. For Jonah is a true Israelite. He is a blood-born citizen of God's nation, born to a people who have been set apart, and Assyria is not. They are the hated enemy, and they are constantly threatening to overrun Israel. And so doing anything good for Assyria would have been suicidal for Israel. But God wants Jonah to go and preach to that city, tell them the truth, warn that city so that his judgment against Nineveh could be avoided. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is reaching out with compassionate mercy to that great enemy of his people, and God chose 
to send a patriotic Jewish prophet to get the job done. And no more unlikely candidate could ever been sent. Nothing about this mission makes any sense, any human sense. Jonah didn't want to go. Why? Well, two reasons, and I think the first one we can easily grasp, he was afraid. He was afraid of failure. Now think of it. How well do you think like a Jewish rabbi would do on the streets of Berlin in 1941, calling on Nazi Germany to repent? Little chance of success, big chance of failure or even worse. I heard of an absolutely shameful account in which a group of Nazi officers took an old, really elderly Jewish rabbi, and each week they stripped him of his clothes and they made him preach to them. It's absolutely shameful what mankind will do to one another. Oh, this world needs a savior. So yes, obviously, Jonah was afraid of failure, but even more than that, I think he was afraid of success. What if they actually do repent and come and believe the message and turn to God? And Jonah certainly didn't want that. He hated the Assyrians. And so, in short, Jonah does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. He's called to go east, so he goes west. Directed to travel over land, he goes by sea. Sent to the big city, he buys a one-way ticket to no man's land. Jonah gets in a boat. God sends a furious storm. The sailors sense something was up with their new passenger. They cast lots to see who has brought this trouble upon them. Answer, Jonah. The prophet convinces them to throw him into the sea, and when they do, the storm subsides. Jonah gets swallowed up by a great fish. Because God has compassion on Jonah. As Kerry Newhoff puts it, he says, there's a great line, God does not run away from runaways. Even though Jonah directly defied God, the Lord provided. He is slow to anger. Oh, he saved him. I like another pastor's line here. He writes, before long he was swallowed by an enormous fish that likely smelled like the outhouse at a county fair. Oh, yeah, we can picture that, right? And then he says, usually when a man eats bad fish, he vomits. But in this case, a fish ate a bad man and vomited. Near Nineveh, of course. Now, in the belly of the whale, Jonah does pray a beautiful prayer of confession and repentance. If you read the story, it's all of chapter two. And it seems that he is beginning to understand what God's grace is all about, that it's for all people, even the Ninevites, but it really doesn't get into his heart. His head, yes, but not his heart. And we understand that uh, because we often do that too. Our head tells us that Christ is Lord, that he is the boss of me. Therefore, I will do what he says. His word is true. We believe all that in our head, 
But when push comes to shove, sometimes it doesn't get into our heart. We know what Jesus says about the sins of lust or greed or withholding forgiveness or not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we agree with all of that in theory. All Christians say that Christ is their savior, not their career or their money or any human approval. That's what we say. But while Jesus is our savior in principle, other things still creep in and fight for that top spot in our lives, right? Just take away the career, or you take away the health, or the relationship, or God forbid, what if our candidate doesn't get elected this fall? Then watch out because God is not on the throne anymore and the whole world's gonna implode, and that's because we've made those things idols. We've made those things bigger than they should be. And so Jonah's lengthy prayer of confession is really more of an intellectual exercise than anything else, as we shall see, because Jonah finally, reluctantly, enters and preaches to the city. And here's the sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Short and sweet, just eight words. And here's the big miracle of the story. It's not the fish, it's the response. They repent. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And the king declared, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion, there's that word again, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And it worked. 120,000 people saved from destruction. It is the ultimate comeback. That's the miracle. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Jonah should be stoked. Uh, a little preaching and an entire city is saved. That's a revival. That's better than Billy Graham. But Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. He pouts. He prays to the Lord. I told you so. I just knew this was going to happen. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Take my life, O oh Lord, it's better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Truly, Jonah is a work in progress. God is compassionate, and he wants Jonah to get compassionate too. So again, in his love, he provides another object lesson for his prophet. God instructs a very big thing like a giant fish, and now, He's gonna do just the opposite. He's gonna to put to work a very, very small thing, a worm, to get his point across. I love that picture, because that's, oh, whoever drew that or painted that really nailed it. Look at him, he is just ticked. You know what I mean? I mean, that is like, man, he's like, hmm. I've had people sitting out there look like that. 
<laughs> well, the scene takes place after the great comeback in Nineveh, and Jonah sits atop this hill, overlooking the city, brooding in the hot sun, and just by his word, God provides a plant. A vine springs up and is fully grown in order to shade Jonah, just by God's word. What a relief. Jonah is very thankful, very glad, very happy about the whole vine thing. And then he goes to sleep for the night. But when he wakes up, Jonah discovered that a worm ate through the plant, destroying it. And that's what I call divine intervention. Thank you. Divine intervention. Move it along. Then comes a little attention getter from God, a scorching east wind blazed up upon Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, Jonah is so upset, so angry, so much so that he wants to die again. Kind of a diva, this guy. He laments, it would be better for me to die than to live. And here it is, the final verse of the book. God confronts Jonah with the fact that he is more upset about his sunburn than he is about thousands of people who were clueless. His idolatrous love for his own country and his own moral self-righteousness have removed Jonah's compassion for the great cities and nations of the world. All he cared about was his own people. God is different. He ends his instruction to Jonah by drawing a deliberate contrast between Jonah and himself. He asked Jonah to leave his comfort zone and his safety and go in love to minister to a people who might harm him. At first, Jonah didn't go at all. And then he went, but he went without compassion. God responded, you wanted me to judge 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. You did not have compassion on the city, but I will. God implied that he would love the wicked in a way that Jonah had refused to do so. And he did. And he would. About 800 years later, someone came who said to a shocked audience that he was the ultimate Jonah, and he was. He left the ultimate comfort zone of heaven in order to come with compassion to love and to preach, not to a people who might mock him or might harm him, but he went to a people who would kill him. Absolutely shameful what mankind would do to the ultimate rabbi the ultimate prophet, they will parade him through the city and they will elevate him on a pole and they will strip him naked and he will preach and he will pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. As Tim Keller points out, while the original Jonah was tossed into the sea and merely thought to be dead, Jesus was tossed into a far fiercer storm, the ultimate storm 
of all the divine justice and punishment that we deserve because of our wrongdoing, because of our disobedience to God's word and our misplaced idol worshiping. Jesus jumped into that so that we would get grace. Christ died for people who do not know their right hand from their left. Jesus' right hand nailed to a cross. Jesus' left hand nailed to the cross for you and for me and for the rest of this wicked world. The book of Jonah ends with a question. Since God asked him, shouldn't your love be like mine? The end. And we're not told Jonah's response. But we have some clues. From all the commentaries I have read, it seems that Jonah repented again. Only this time I did get into his heart. Reason being the fact that the book was actually written. If Jonah remained unrepentant, we would not expect him to tell the story, but he tells it, and he tells it honestly. And in it, we see an honest glimpse of how judgmental and self-righteous and racist Jonah really is and how merciful and gracious and compassionate is his God. But it's a strange ending, though. I mean, it just ends. And we can rightly assume Jonah's response, but we're not told directly. Why not? Here's why. Because the question is intended to be aimed at us. Should I not be concerned? The question comes right at us because you are Jonah and I I'm Jonah. I read that to this day, the Jews gather in the synagogue each year on the Day of Atonement, and the rabbi reads the entire book of Jonah. And after the reading, the congregation replies in unison, we are Jonah. And we are Jonah when we hold on to our idols instead of obeying God. And we are Jonah when we don't care about people who are different. And we are Jonah when we don't love those in the big city or even in our own neighborhood or maybe even in our own families who might be sometimes very hard to love. The question is, are you willing to change? God is asking, shouldn't your love be like mine? If so, then let us keep our eyes fixed, looking to the ultimate Jonah and to his sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His grace and compassion are ours, and it's intended to share. Listen, make compassion your passion. That's Jesus' style. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
that he sent to his disciples and continues to say to his disciples right here, right now, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So how about you? Yes, you. Make compassion your passion. Go into the harvest fields. Go to Target. I'll explain. I'll wrap it up with this. It's a great story because it's true. It's not as dramatic, uh, not as dangerous as Jonah's call. No preaching of repentance is involved, but it's just good. It's compassion with skin on. I was talking on the phone with one of our members uh, a week or two ago, and she told me about an interesting encounter that she had at the Target store. Uh, she had just two things to, to pick up, uh, cat food and cat litter. And I suppose those two go hand in hand. Well, she proceeds down the pet aisle. She knows where she's going and all that. And, you know, and then somehow, some way, I don't know how this works, but she was prompted to, prompted by the Lord to go down a completely different aisle. What? Why? She didn't understand, and you could imagine she felt like a crazy person. She, she doesn't have time for this, and she doesn't want to wander around Target. She wants to get her things and move along. But she just had this feeling that God wanted her to take a different path. And so, reluctantly, she obeys to what she believes the Lord is directing her to do. And it's something that just doesn't make any human sense. And she comes across a book. It was just kind of laying out by itself. It wasn't tucked in where books usually are. It was just kind of sitting out there, separate from everything else. Is this it, Lord? You want me to buy this? It's one of those coloring books for adults. And this one happened to be a Christian one with Bible verses in it about peace and hope and lo, I'm with you always kind of stuff. Well, she bought the coloring book and then she bought a couple of food items, and, and then you could tell it's a true story because she bought this, these really wild socks with dogs on them. And she went home and she, she boxed it all up and then she sent it to a friend who lost her husband last year. And when that widow received that package in the mail and opened it all up, she just wept. She wept because someone was concerned for her. She wept because someone had thought of her. She was feeling so alone, especially during this time of social distancing. She hasn't even been out of her house. 
And she was wondering if she really was all alone. But then this little gift, this strange little gift, and it told her something, that she's not alone. Someone had compassion for her. See, that's what love looks like. And you see, friends, that's Jesus' style. His style is so often opposite of the ways in which this world works. But I'll tell you this. In him, it is absolutely wonderful what mankind can do to one another. Make compassion your passion, and watch what God can do through you. We are Jonah. We are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would never leave us or forsake us, that you would continue to shine your light into our hearts and then help us to reflect your light to someone who needs your love. We thank you that you came into our sinful world in order to redeem it and rescue us. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we may follow you and take up your command to love one another, no matter who, no matter where. Help us to make compassion our passion. And Jesus, you are the great physician, also the Prince of Peace. And so we lift up to you our loved one, Elsie. We also ask for your presence to be felt for all those in our lives and to the many in our country and around the world who are struggling with illness or fear or grief. We pray for the orphaned and the widowed. We pray for all who are shut in. We also come asking for your will to guide all who are in authority over us. Bless those who serve and protect us. We thank you for all who teach and for those who preach the gospel, including Pastor Max Fisher, who will be installed this afternoon as the new pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran in New Melly. Bless his ministry in that harvest field so that he may be a blessing to many. And we lift up these, our prayers, and all the prayers in our hearts and our minds to you this day, and now continue with the words that you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. And God's blessings to you and the rest of your day. Certainly want to invite you back uh, next week because the comeback stories continue. And for me, I think it's the best comeback story ever told. It's the one Jesus told in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And no matter how often you hear it, we need to hear it and hear it and hear it because it's absolutely loaded, loaded, loaded with grace. So if you need some grace, which you do, or if you know someone who needs some grace,
Please invite him to either watch or, or bring them uh, to Messiah at 9 o'clock or 1045 next week because it's just the best story because it shows us Jesus and it shows us the heart of God. So blessings to you. And with that, I invite you to please rise and uh, we'll give God the glory in our closing song.